Good morning. The past two weeks, we've been in Ephesians chapter 4, and we've been reminded by the Apostle Paul how the local church reveals God's glory through unity and through every part of the body exercising their gifts. Verses 1 through 6 addressed unity that comes about through humility and patience and love. Verses 7 through 16 talked about how Jesus gave gifts to everybody who has trusted in Christ. Every Christian has gifts from Jesus which he wants to have employed in the well-being and strengthening of the church. And both of those contribute to him getting glory. Both of those contribute to this church um, walking worthy of the calling with which we've been called. When you just think about, uh, it occurred to me um, that when you hear about the Shenandoah County plant, what those people are doing, those men and women who have been praying about this church and praying about what their role might be and praying for the people in their community, those are not people who don't already have a church. (laughs) Those are not people who don't already have enough to do. Those are people who have a church and have enough to do, but they know God wants to work through them to reach their neighbors. Well, interesting what that takes is exactly what Ephesians 4 has been talking about. They need to work together for unity, humble themselves with one another, be patient, be loving, and then exercise their gifts. And interestingly, what they're doing in Shenandoah County is what the rest of us are called to do uh, right here in Winchester or wherever the Lord deploys us. But today we're coming to the second half of Ephesians chapter 4. We're beginning today in verse 17, and Lord willing, we'll work our way through the rest of the chapter. And I want us to see how God tells us that there is something else that will bring about his glory. Unity, yes. Using our gifts, absolutely. But there's something else, and it has to do with living differently in our relationships with each other than we used to. Meaning, if you've come to know Christ, there should be a markedly different way that I relate from how I related before Christ. That's the idea. Very, very simple. We'll see it here beginning in verse 17. Paul writes, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord. So this is something he's going to say, and he's saying the Lord has said the same thing. I'm just affirming what he's saying. That you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, And now he wants to describe how Gentiles walk. He's talking about people without Christ. He's not talking predominantly about their ethnicity in this context. He's talking about these are people who haven't yet come to know Jesus. In the futility of their mind, that's how they walk, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance in them, because of the hardness of their heart, And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Paul and the Lord are telling us not only pursue unity, not only exercise your gifts, but relate differently than you used to. Um, Stop behaving like people without Christ. 
the Bible often refers to man's natural thinking as darkened and God's words as light. For example, Colossians 1 verse 13 says, he rescued us from the domain of darkness. You know, a lot of us didn't really know we were in a domain of darkness. It's just that God helped us see our sin and then he helped us see that Christ died for us and he helped us see that he offered eternal life to all who believe. And it's maybe over the course of time that we look back and go, you know, I was in a lot more darkness than I realized. That's what he's talking about in Colossians. Or Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8 says, you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. You used to be this, but now you're this. The Lord and Paul are directing us, no longer let the darkened thinking be true of us. The behavior of these people without Christ is further described. It's, it's described as being given over to sensuality, which specifically or especially has to do with sexual sin. Uh, given over to impurity. And given over to greediness. That, I, that means that they're focusing on what they get. It's a selfish focus on what do I get. My relationship is based on what I get. That's really what greed is. It also says that their heart is callous, and that means they're without remorse. These people who are without Christ don't have real remorse over what they've done. They're, they're callous. They're not convicted. God, I need this to change in me. What Paul is saying is, don't keep walking that way. And by the way, I find that very interesting. Because there are some Christians who sometimes would think, that there's no need to say to a Christian, no longer walk this way, because the assumption is if you're really a Christian, you would never do that thing, those things. But the Apostle Paul is apparently making it quite clear, together with the Lord, when he says no longer behave this way, what he's saying is there are some of you behaving that way right now. We need to ask the Lord, show me. Show me where this might be true of me. Where am I still reasoning like a darkened thinker? Where am I still reasoned from a calloused heart? Why? Well, because if we keep walking the way we would have without Christ, we'll never be able to manifest the glory that the church was meant to manifest. In other words, church will never accomplish her purpose. And I'll never accomplish the purpose God had for me within the church. So it's, it's fairly straightforward, really. Let's go on and read a little more, verses 20 and following. Uh, reading from the New American Standard still. But you did not learn Christ in this way. What he means in verse 20 is, you, you weren't taught when you became a Christian to just keep living the way you always had. Um, that's not how you learned Christ. If indeed you've heard him and been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. So, so it's kind of like he's saying, if, if when you became a Christian, uh, and again, in a group this size, there might be some people who have not yet come to understand what that means. And simply what it means is that a person who's a Christian is somebody who realizes, uh, I'm a sinner and God deserves to judge me. And I wish I could not be judged, but I can't be right enough for him. But I've heard that Jesus died in my place. 
He took all my sins on him and then was raised from the dead to prove that he forgives it and to prove that he can make me a new person. And I just believed it. That's what it means to be a Christian. Well, notice that when a person believes that message, the understanding is, I'm not getting saved so that I can just keep living the same way. I'm getting saved, I'm getting forgiven, I'm being given a new life so that I can learn to live a different way, which is exactly what Paul's going to talk about here. You did not learn Christ in this way if indeed you've been heard him and been taught in him as truth is in Jesus. Look at verse 22, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth kind of a long sentence and it helps with long sentences to break them down so we're going to do that but I also want us to understand that there there's a grammatical problem here verse 22 says lay aside the old self in my version uh, King James does too the NIV and the ESV both say to lay aside the old self and if you look at verse 24, my version says, put on the new self, like the King James does. And once again, the NIV and the ESV say, to put on the new self. But none of those translations have gotten the sense of this quite right. Um, the reason is because the, the, the form of a verb here that's used is better understood as, as something that has already been accomplished. The, the Greek tense that's used refers to something that is already done. So it wouldn't be actually telling you to do it. it. It is not given as a command. There are specific forms in Greek that show something to be a command. This doesn't have it. And the reason is because it's something that already happened. So when I read verse 22, lay aside the old self, it doesn't say that. Or when I read verse 24, put on the new self, it doesn't say that. I think we have it up here maybe, or, or, or should here shortly. What it actually would read is, in reference to your former manner of life, you have laid aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceits, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, for you have put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. See, this is what excites me about that. This, this is what makes that significant to me. The Apostle Paul in verse 22 and 24 is not giving me a command. He's not giving you a command. He's telling you about something that already happened if you're a Christian. In other words, when you became a Christian, with re respect to your former life, you laid it aside. You may not have known that. You may have believed that you just believed something about you being a sinner and Christ dying for you, which is true. But what this is telling us is something else happened too. You actually laid aside the old self and you put on a new self. That's what happened when people become Christians. Now, it's interesting though that it says you laid aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. And you say, well, what is that about? If I laid it aside, well, here's the thing. That old self that you laid aside, it's still there. It's just not your identity, biblically speaking. It's not who you are. And here's the problem with it. If I choose, remember what he said at the beginning, no longer walk 
as do people without Christ. No longer because you have that capacity, because I have that capacity. What he's saying is, since you have laid aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance to the lust of deceit, what he means is that old self, whenever I function in a way that's aligned with the old self, it is still going to be corrupted. It's still going to be marked by the lusts of deceit. In other words, I remember thinking when I was a young Christian that the more I grew in Christ, that maybe my sins would get cleaner and cleaner and cleaner. I thought that my, you know, like my sins would get really small. And so that means that, that yes, I would not only walk in more righteousness, I was looking forward to that, but I was also looking forward to the fact that when I fell, my fall would be very tiny. Well, what this says is, that old self, it is in the process of being corrupted today. Meaning you and I still have the capacity to sin far more than we wish were true. So what he is commanding us here is, in this whole passage is, when he says, no longer walk like you used to, he's saying, remember, you already laid aside the old self. And you already put on a new self. And as a Christian, I need to remember that because, here's the thing, when I function in a way consistent with my new self, I'll find the greatest joy and the greatest peace because I'll be united to who I really am, with him. And when I'm functioning according to the old self, which I laid aside, it's going to feel out of place. It's, it's, it's meant to feel out of place. It's meant to make me feel far from God because it's not who I am. Now, in the middle of it, it tells us in verse 23, which I sort of skipped over, it says, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. This, this particular phrase is just saying, in view of the fact that you're no longer who you once were and you are a new person, in view of that, Go through the process of continually letting your mind be made new. And you know, if you're in a church service and you're reading your Bible and you're listening to a sermon and you're wondering how it applies to you, that is the very process by which we renew the spirit of our mind. It's not the only means. Reading a good book, taking time with the Lord to have face time with Him in the mornings, or whatever else it is that you do for the purpose of seeking out the face of God, all of those are the process by which we're renewed in the spirit of our mind because, why do we do it? Because I'm no longer who I once was, I become someone new, and I'm no longer to live like I once did. That's the whole idea in the first section here, verses 17 through 24. Now let's look at some examples. He's going to give us some examples of how we can put on the new self. He's going to show us some examples of how we can remember that we've laid aside the old self. Here's the first one, verse 25. Therefore, in view of everything I just got through saying, laying aside falsehood, speak truth each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. So verses 25 through 27. He's given us several commands there. Now notice, now he's in the point of saying, I am going to tell you something to do. Verse 22, verse 24, here's something that already happened. Verse 23, let your mind be being renewed. What happens when you let your mind be renewed? Well, you start out like this, verse 25. First, lay aside falsehood. And if you're anything like me, you would normally think, well, does that really need to be said to a group of Christians? I mean, of course we're to lay aside falsehood, right? Duh. You know, you, 
You kind of think you could just skip over that, Paul. After all, these are Christians we're talking about. Well, I'm glad it's here. Because I remember a time a few years ago when a friend of mine asked me a question. He asked me whether I'd read a book that he had read. And I, I didn't want to look dumb. I didn't want to look unprepared. I didn't want to look at not as read as he was. So you know what? I told him yes. Now, I had held the book. I had scanned the book. I had read the table of contents. I had actually read the last page. That's how I start reading books. You know, I had familiarized myself with the book, but I hadn't read the book, but I didn't bother to tell him that. I said yes, because I didn't want to feel like less. So two weeks later, when communion came, here at this church, while I was serving as a pastor, I had to let communion go by because you examine yourself when you take communion. And the scriptures say, don't take communion in, in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Meaning, you're, you're reminding yourself that the body and blood of the Lord Jesus was shed for your sins. And are you going to continue in your sin? And so I had to let it go by. And I thought, boy, I, I don't want that to happen again. I've got to go tell him. I've got to straighten it out with him. But I was ashamed. So you know what? A month later, communion came by. Lord's Supper went right by me again. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I still haven't talked to him. I've got to let this go by again. Because I don't want to dishonor what Christ did for me by continuing to live in my falsehood. So I talked to him the very next day and uh, told him what I had done and apologized for it. And, you know, he certainly forgave me. But here's the point. Little commands like lay aside falsehood is for every one of us because we're no longer to live like we once did. Because little falsehoods are some of the ways that we are as a church that we are still like people who have not yet trusted Christ. And he's calling us, don't do it anymore. Rather, speak truth because you're members of one another. That is, we're connected. We're not living for ourselves. If, if we're a Christian, if, if, if we understand our sin put Jesus on the cross and he laid it out for me and he offered me forgiveness and I really believe that and I, I was forgiven and given a new life and a new future and a new identity and a new hope. If all that's true, then I need to realize I also became connected to other people, even including some I might not like very much. And so if I'm withholding truth because it's just not worth it, or I'm withholding truth because I don't know how to extricate myself from the anger I have, I'm not speaking truth. And he tells me, speak truth, each one of you with your neighbors, because we're members. And by the way, he says, isn't this interesting? While telling us to speak truth, he says, be angry. I, I will just tell you, as an Irishman, that is a command I've done pretty well at obeying. Be angry. I, if it stopped there, I'd be doing okay. Some of you know what I mean. But it doesn't stop there. It's saying that as you're dealing with issues, you're going to experience anger. 
As you're dealing with things that are true, there will be things that will be unrighteous. They'll be wrong. They'll be what they shouldn't be. And so he's saying, be angry in that in the context of giving truth. But isn't it interesting that he doesn't pause at all and he says, be angry, but don't sin in your anger. And then he gives one example. There are multiple ways that you can sin with anger. I've got several. I mean, this was really easy for me. I could have talked about... uh, how I sin with anger, my goodness, that would have been a piece of cake. Um, I can sin with anger by intimidating people, by raising my voice, you know, kind of cornering them and, and shaming them. I can uh, see somebody doing something wrong and have a critical, judgmental attitude towards them and a scornful attitude in my heart rather than a patient attitude, rather than a loving attitude. I can avoid people. I know that if I'm around them, I'm going to have to say something that's true, and I don't look forward to it. Maybe because they're going to handle it badly, maybe because I'm afraid I might handle it badly. But I'm avoiding them because I'm avoiding truth. Or I might talk to somebody else about them. Folks, that's just the quick ones that I came up with in I mean, if I had actually had to take time to think about how I have sinned in anger, I, I would have been writing for a very long time. These are just quick ones. I don't know about for you. I don't know how many of those you identify with. But the point is, God's saying, you're going to be angry if you're a truthful person at times. But do not give that as a permission for you to sin in the process. For example, pretend that I'm worried about COVID. Pretend I'm worried about getting it because I really do have four stents in my heart. I have had congestive heart failure in the last few years. I have a lifetime of respiratory problems ever since I was a little kid, and I'm 64 years old. I'm kind of in the bullseye, right? So nobody would fault me for being one of the people who's concerned about getting COVID. So what if I read a friend's Facebook post this past week where they mocked people who wear masks like me because they see things differently than I do, and then they come up to me at church while I'm wearing a mask and they don't have one on, and they try to shake my hand and get a little too close for me. Should I speak some truth to them? Maybe even some of my my anger? Or here's another example. Pretend I really don't have too much concern about getting COVID. Maybe I think that diseases come and go, but real life and the economy and life still need to go on. Maybe I rejoice that if I got a bad dose as a Christian, I'd get to be with Jesus, and then I wouldn't have to even watch this next election. Maybe I think the science isn't that clear and even they don't agree with themselves, let alone one another. Maybe I wash my hands often. Maybe I'm sick of a government telling me where to stand and what to wear and what not to do and the last thing I want is for my church to side with the government. Well, if I were to tell somebody that, would I be sinning? I mean, after all, it tells me to speak the truth. It even tells me to be angry. And I don't know about you, but it's not hard for me to see myself in either of those categories. Well, here's the problem. If in the first example I went up to somebody and I said, do you understand my risk of infection? Do you not realize that you might unknowingly pass the disease to someone like me in view of the fact that 80% of the people who happen to have it are asymptomatic and I could die? 
Could I say that? Or in the second example, could I say, do you realize that masks provide very little virus protection, that only 7% of those who are tested test positive, and then only about 2 or 3% of those who end up getting sick actually die, and in most cases, they die from comorbidities? The things I'm saying are essentially true. Here's the problem, though. I don't think it's what I say. Ultimately, I think either one of these could be true, and they might even contain some element of the anger that might have been legitimate. But here's the problem. Did I judge them in my heart? You know, did I look down on them? Did I see them as somehow lesser than I and wrong and needing to be put in their place? And did I maintain a scornful spirit towards them rather than a loving one? Did I speak ill of them to others? Did I maybe pass on a scathing Facebook post about the selfishness of people without masks? Did I maybe tweet a funny haiku about the stupidity of those who think masks are the, attitude, are the answer? Or did I maintain resentment towards all those who think differently than I do? Because if the Lord's command to me as a Christian is, John, stop living like people do who don't know Christ. And if I have that type of judgment in my heart, regardless of what position I fall on one particular social issue of our day, I'm sinning. I'm living like I, I did before Christ when I said what I wanted to say when I wanted to say it. Thankfully, he gives us an antidote. Look down with you at verse 29. It says in verse 29, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, that it might give grace to those who hear. Well, isn't that interesting? He's giving me guidance on how to speak truth, even including anger. I'm not to speak anything unwholesome meaning wasted, meaning trashy. Obviously, it includes cuss words, but it could, it could also include name-calling. But it's far more than that. It's unnecessary words that actually gum up the works of a relationship. It's, it's saying, don't let yourself speak. You're a Christian now, John. Nothing unwholesome. I can remember an interaction with two or three of the staff guys a month or so ago. We were talking about something. I don't remember what it was. It was in my office. And, and uh, maybe some people on uh, my leadership team. And I just got really frustrated. And I, I just said, this is just stupid. Blah, 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 blah. Okay? Now, I spoke the truth, and I allowed my anger to display itself. But folks, I believe that what I said and the way I said it was unwholesome. Why? Well, this is the key, because I wasn't speaking words for the purpose of edifying. In other words, I wasn't thinking about what it says and does for those in my office. I'm thinking about what I want to say. That goes back to the darkened thinking. That goes back to the calloused heart. That goes back to greediness. I'm using my words for my own greedy purpose. I just want to say what I want to say because I like being independent. And I like telling them I'm not going to take anybody's guff. Well, that and $3.50 will get you a cup of coffee. Big deal. Big deal. 
What he's telling me is, John, use your words in such a way as edify other people according to the need that it would give grace. Give grace. If I'm correcting my child and I'm just resentful of them for having gone against me again. Now, I'm not saying what they did is not wrong. It's wrong. And I'm not saying it doesn't need to be corrected. It may well need to be corrected. But if I've got that resentful, scornful, how dare you do it to me attitude, I'm not doing it for edification, and I'm not trying to give grace to those who hear. I'm just trying to bust. Frankly, that's how people live outside of Christ. I may have to say hard words, but I still need to say it with the concept, going back to verse 1, of this chapter, that I'm to walk in a manner worthy of my calling, pursuing unity with humility, with gentleness, with patience, with love, exercising my gifts as I'm meant to within the body, within my family, within the community. I'm, I'm meant to do those things, but I am no longer to live the way I used to live. Look at how he finishes, and this is going to be our benediction. It's, it's Verses 30 through 32, he says these really lovely words. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. What he's saying is, Christian, you've already been sealed. This is not a question of your salvation. You've already trusted in Christ. But do you realize that if I do any of the stuff up above that he told me not to do, I will be grieving the Holy Spirit? Isn't that something to think? That God, the Holy Spirit, very God of very God, can actually be grieved by me. Grieve means like breaking someone's heart. There's a groan that goes on with the Holy Spirit when I live these ways, when you live these ways. Why? Well, because it robs God of his glory. It diminishes the likelihood that other people will see there really is a living God. Because when I live for myself and when I don't allow him to come through me, when I, when I permit the bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and all those things to still be part of my story, it's just about me. And that's how people live before they come to Christ. And the Lord is telling me, John, it's not right to continue to live that way. I've got something better for you. Why? Or how? What's the better thing? Well, verse 32 tells me, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, as God in Christ also has forgiven you. That's, that's what he's left us with. Pursue unity within the body. Pursue the ways that you can serve, because if you're a Christian, you're meant to. But also, remind yourself every day, I already laid aside the old self when I became a Christian, and I put on a new self. Lord, would you help me live in such a way that my life reflects that? And frankly, this passage is a great place to just read and examine. Lord, how am I doing at putting away falsehood? How am I doing it renewing my mind? How am I doing it speaking truth? How am I doing it 
using my anger in such a way as is not sinful. How am I doing, Lord, with each of these things? That's a great place for us as a church. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you're a patient God. Thank you that you, who have every right for anger, certainly towards me, probably towards all of us, that you, you don't sin in your anger. I know sometimes, Lord, you rebuke us in anger. I know that. But frankly, like Psalm 103 says, the vast majority of the time, you don't deal with us according to our iniquity. You, um, you have exercised such loving kindness. Thank you for that. Thank you for that example. I ask you, Lord, for the sake of the church. I ask you for the sake of your glory. I ask you for the sake of us learning to walk worthy of the calling. Would you help us, Lord, each one, each one who knows Christ to let these things be part of our intentional meditation, reflection, and pursuit. May you receive the glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.